Welcome to Loss and Insight. I'm Mark Fancourt-Smith. And I'm Alexandra Stoichev. Thank you for joining us on Loss and Insight, brought to you by Lawson Lundell, LLP. On this episode, we will be speaking with Will Shaw of our Vancouver office. Will is a senior associate here in Vancouver, practicing civil litigation and dispute resolution with a focus on environmental, public utility, and regulatory law. Will has represented defendants in regulatory enforcement matters, including environmental offenses, occupational health and safety matters, and has assisted proponents of mining, energy, and infrastructure projects navigate the environmental assessment process. Will and I have also had a couple of uh, cases together over the years, the last one being an interesting arbitration and mediation regarding a major software procurement where we both ended up being given Hermes ties by the client in an obscure reference to the movie The Godfather. Uh, Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. The reason we wanted to have you on was to talk about a blog you recently wrote for Lawson Lundell's real estate law blog on the amendments to the Environmental Management Act and the Contaminated Sites Regulation. As I understand, the amendments are going to affect the application process for redevelopment of lands formerly used for specified or industrial uses. But before we get to that and the amendments, sort of at a 20,000-foot level, what is the contaminated sites regime currently in BC? So uh, the contaminated sites regime in British Columbia is what's set up under uh, the two acts that you mentioned, or the Act and Regulation, the Environmental Management Act and the Contaminated Sites Regulation, to both uh, identify contaminated sites uh, around the province and also to uh, assist in or in some cases force the remediation of those contaminated sites. And that can be done either by someone who owns the land and wants to do a number of things with it, like develop it or or decommission a, an industrial site, uh, or someone that has acquired land that others have contaminated and, and wants to remediate it and recover those costs uh, from former owners and operators of the site. These amendments in particular, which are known as the Stage 13 Amendments, are focused primarily on the first part, on identifying contaminated or potentially contaminated sites in BC. Uh, The Ministry of Environment operates its contaminated sites registry uh, for all contaminated, potentially contaminated sites across the province. And and the site identification process uh, is one uh, through which the ministry can gain uh, knowledge about uh, historical activities on properties that may have caused contamination and then make that information available uh, for others who can then, if they acquire the property later on, they can go to the registry and, and see if there's any issues with it or, or use that information before they acquire the property to make sure they're not uh, picking up contaminated sites. And this site identification process is specifically related to those sites that have had certain kinds of activities on them in the past, whether they be specified commercial or industrial uses. And so, Will, um, these changes could affect people in BC who are buying, selling, and developing land. And so in that sense, they're pretty significant. And I understand that one of the main changes under the Stage 13 amendments uh, is that the province is replacing the old site profile form with the new site disclosure form as part of the site identification process. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about what triggers the requirement to submit this new site disclosure statement and what is that statement going to have to include? There are a few activities that can trigger when a site disclosure statement is required. Uh, That might be decommissioning or ceasing operations on a site uh, used for one of the specified industrial or commercial uses, Uh, or if you're looking to redevelop the site and you need to get a municipal building or development permit or maybe subdivision for the property. 
there's also some triggers now for if you are seeking protection under either the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act or the Companies Creditors Arrangement Act, uh, that can trigger site disclosure statement requirements. And as before, if you are selling land in a private sale, that can lead to uh, requirements to disclose uh, what past uses have been on the site. And, and one of the things that's different here uh, in the site disclosure statement versus the site profile, the site profile went through a number of yes or no questions to, to determine uh, what activities had occurred on the site or whether there was, say, a potential for an underground storage tank or something like that. And now you still have to provide kind of a general overview of the information of the site, the identification information, uh, and you just have to provide a notice of any past industrial or commercial uses that are set out in Schedule 2 of the contaminated sites regime and, and give a sense of what might be done with the land going forward. And, and I think one of the, the reasons for this change is this is all meant to streamline the identification process and the remediation process. So it's no longer going to a director of contaminated sites to determine whether or not investigations should take place. Uh, now there, there's going to be much more automatic requirements for investigation. So they no longer have to go through as much information, these yes or no questions. Now, if you are submitting a site disclosure statement, in, in most cases, there's going to be some requirement for investigation. So they, they don't need as much of the detail as they had in the, the previous site profile form. Yeah. So, Will, the question that follows from that is once the requirement for a site disclosure statement is triggered and the site disclosure statement is duly filed, um, what, generally speaking, are those next steps? What's triggered by the triggering? Yeah. So once you've filed the site disclosure statement, it depends a little bit on the situation that you're in, what you have to do next. Uh, in the context of a municipal or land title application, so for subdivision zoning or development, uh, the next step is, is usually a preliminary site investigation, um, which is partly a desktop exercise to look at uh, what historical uses uh, that land has been used for, uh, and, and also will probably involve some uh, level of on-site work just to, to do some preliminary uh, checks for any kind of contamination. And if that preliminary site investigation identifies any potential for contamination on the land, uh, then you will likely have to do a, a detailed site investigation. And then that information would be submitted to the ministry either for a release, um, which could come in the form of a determination that the land is not uh, contaminated or that the land's not high risk or that uh, the proponent will enter into a voluntary remediation agreement uh, with the ministry uh, to make sure that the land will get cleaned up. Uh, or if there's more significant contamination or more significant concerns, it, it may be necessary to go all the way through to get a certificate of compliance, uh, so to complete the full remediation. Um, in some of the other situations, if you're decommissioning it or ceasing operations, again, that's going to be a preliminary site investigation and probably a detailed site investigation. But in, in another situation, like the if you're seeking protection under the, the Companies Creditors Arrangement Act or the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, all that you're required to do is submit the environmental reports that you have in your possession. And then if you're preparing the site disclosure statement in the context of the private sale of land, there's no actual requirement to submit it to the ministry. It's more just for the purchaser's awareness. 
so you know once you've provided that site disclosure statement uh, there may not be any further steps that you have to to undertake at that point and not all sites are going to require the disclosure statements as i understand it so for example like if you've got a subdivision of land for a statutory right-of-way or for minor lot boundary adjustments, um, there's exemptions as I understand it. And so I'm just wondering if you can chat a little bit about some of the other exemptions and, and why they're there. Yeah, so there's a number of different ways that you, you might uh, be able to get an exemption. So the best example is if you've already uh, done some form of remediation, you've already got a valid and subsisting uh, certificate of compliance for the site or, or an approval in principle for the site that this is going to be remediated. You've got an environmental consultant on board and you've got a plan for doing that and that's been approved by the ministry. So if you're already in that process and, and you're you're moving along in that process, then you may be exempt from uh, the requirement to submit a, a new site disclosure statement. So long as you're not aware of any further contamination that's occurred after either you obtain the certificate of compliance or the approval in principle, Similarly, if there's uh, something known as a, an environmental management area for which the director's approved a remediation plan, that may be exempt. In the development and permit application side of things, there are some developments and permits that are exempt. Um, so an application related to demolition no longer requires a site disclosure statement. That's a change in the new Stage 13 amendments. And then also some kind of superficial uh, development and building permits, like the installation or replacement of fencing or signage or some underground utilities. Uh, that doesn't require a site disclosure statement. One of the key thresholds is if there's going to be a disturbance of soil, um, then that will likely involve a site disclosure statement. And the ministry said that almost any amount of disturbance of soil will lead to a site disclosure statement. Um, but if you're doing superficial work above ground, you know, working within buildings, um, redeveloping those buildings, you may not require the site disclosure statement. And then, as you mentioned, um, it won't be required for subdivision of land for statutory rights of way or, or minor lot boundary adjustments. One of the things that comes to mind from this is, of course, the cost. And I know that the regime in BC is essentially a polluter pays regime, but it seems it's almost a, a polluter pays eventually regime. Is that right? Yeah. So the um, Environmental Management Act allows for a statutory cost recovery claim, which allows you to recover the, the reasonably incurred costs of remediating a property. And, and you can bring that claim against any former owners and operators of the site, and then they would be jointly and severally liable for those costs of remediation. So, you know, the great thing about that is you really only need one uh, defendant with pockets deep enough to cover your costs of remediation, and then you can get the money that you spent back. But the, the problem with that is that you have to spend the money first. You have to have remediated the property. You have to have incurred those costs. Um, and and so you're putting all that cost up front, and then you may also be adding the cost of litigation on top of that. And so remediating property can be very expensive. They, even just the investigations to figure out how much contamination is there can cost tens of thousands of dollars, for even for simple sites. So it is quite possible that uh, that it's a long time before you see the recovery of the costs that you spent. It is all meant to go back on those who polluted it. 
but there is some lead time before you're going to get any of that money back. And some risk, I suppose, that the person who is required at first instance to undertake those investigations simply doesn't have the funds to do so. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that's true of if you're redeveloping a formal commercial or industrial site. And I mean, those can be pretty big remediation projects. But it's also true in the context of you know, purchasing a residential property. And if you find out there's an underground storage tank there that's that's caused some contamination of, of your property and maybe even some of the neighboring properties, it's going to be expensive to clean that up. And that can add quite a bit to the the purchase of a residential property. So, you know, it's it's important to do your, your due diligence before you acquire any of these properties to get a sense of what the environmental liabilities associated with it might be. Um, and Will, that I think ties into the question that I was going to ask, which is just what do you see as sort of the broad system-wide results that will come out of these new amendments? So I, I think the big thing is that they are taking the the decision about whether an investigation is required out of the discretion of a, a director's hands, and it, it's more of an automated process now. Um, and that's going to mean that there's more investigations, more more money spent on environmental consultants and, and to do these investigations and, and uh, more remediation, which for the province in a lot of ways is great. It means that the contaminated sites are being cleaned up, but it also means that there could be a lot more litigation where, where people that are required to uh, conduct these investigations seek to recover those costs against former owners and operators. Uh, it could also mean a longer tail for development applications. You know, you, you won't get your final development permits or your, your final building permits until you've got uh, either a release from the director or a, a certificate of compliance. Um, and, and that could take time. And, and one of the things that the ministry has said with these stage 13 amendments is that if you've got a multi-phase, multi-year development, it's not suitable to get a, a release anymore. Now you, you will have to go through all the way to a certificate of compliance or to an approval in principle. And again, that's going to mean more work with consultants, more remediation, uh, which is, is good for the land, but it, is, it means a, a slower development process. And also potentially a, a heightened awareness by previous landowners that just simply by having sold the property, they're not off the hook, so to speak. Um, certainly, of course, that was the case before, but this will no doubt continue to be top of mind for previous landowners in that respect. Yeah, certainly. And one thing that I, I would say with that is that it shows the importance of getting a certificate of compliance for land that you own, because that gives you um, protection uh, for any subsequent owners and operators that, that um, pick up the land and, and try and change the use. You've got that certificate of compliance that protects you from these um, uh, cost recovery claims. Uh, and, you know, you, you can get contractual uh, arrangements when you're selling a property that will protect you from from being sued by you know the next person that that purchases a property, but to get that long term protection, you really need uh, the certificate of compliance to make sure that no one down the road comes after you. Hmm, that's interesting. Will, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having. Me. Always fun to talk about contaminated sites. <laughs> <laughs> For more information on this issue, you can check out uh, the blog post that Will Shaw did that's available on Lawson Lendell's website, LawsonLendell.com. You can also stay up to date by connecting with us on social media using the handle at Lawson Lendell and by subscribing to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Thanks very much for listening.